Silence is golden, especially when it comes to brakes. That's why Napa Silent Guard are built to be one of the smoothest and most quiet brakes on the market. Made with fiber-reinforced shims that eliminate noise for the life of the pad. Rubber-coated hardware for a better fit and quality design that meets and exceeds OE performance. Silent Guard brakes deliver the stopping power drivers demand. Available now at Napa locations nationwide. Warning! This episode contains spoilers for the latest episode of Book of Boba Fett, Chapter 5. If you have not watched that episode, watch it now. Hello, my name is Jason Concepcion. Welcome to X-Ray Vision, the crooked podcast where we dive deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. In today's episode, on previously on uh, some Star Wars video game announcements, the return of Saga, we got to talk about it. Oh, my God. And a new story about why you should back up, just always back up your files. That's it. Always back up your files in the airlock. Uh, we will be talking about the Book of Boba Fett, Episode 5. The Boba Fett spoiler does not appear in this episode, but that's fine. A nerd out, a listener, and a friend pitches us on Babylon 5. Part of the uh, the oeuvre of the great uh, J. Michael Straczynski, longtime Spider-Man writer, longtime sci-fi writer. And in the end game, we will play Mando Kart. If you are not caught up with anything we are covering, or you just want to hop around the episode, look for timestamps in our show notes. We are so delighted today to have our good friend, the absolutely fantastic, the great, the terrible, the talented Rosie Knight joining us today. Rosie, how are you? Hello, I'm good. It's so nice to be here. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Saga's out. I was thinking of you. I was like, it's Jason's time. It's Yesterday, my time. I was like, new comic book day, baby. Let's go. All right, let's get to the news. First bit of news, some Star Wars video game announcements on January 25th. EA, Electronic Arts, and Lucasville Games announced that they are reteaming for three new games in the Star Wars universe, all currently under development by Respawn Entertainment. The first is a sequel to Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, uh, the game directed by Stig Asmussen. The next is a first-person shooter, very sparse details on that one. And the next is a strategy game being co-developed in collaboration between Respawn and Bit Reactor, led by Greg Forch, who is former director at Firaxis and worked on XCOM 2. XCOM, one of the most addictive kind of turn-based strategy games out there. So very excited to see if, if any of that kind of mechanic makes it into the Star Wars universe. Vince Zampella, GM and founder of Respawn, longtime Call of Duty developer, says, quote, if you want to make great Star Wars games, you should come join us on our journey. Well, okay. Well, I'm very excited to play more Star Wars games. I I still play Star Wars Battlefront. What can I say? I still do it. (laughs) Why you should back up your files. Okay. The next issue of The Good Asian, written by Pornsec Pichette Show, 
uh, drawn by Alexandra Tefenki, was delayed but can now be expected March 3rd, 2022, according to Pichette Show. The delay is due to basically the artist losing all the files and having to redraw the entire issue again. Devastating. Have you ever had a a lost file issue like this? I have done it many times. (laughs) It is my greatest nightmare. And I, so I, I basically do everything in Google Docs and in a way that is kind of salvageable on some kind of cloud. But I think for anyone who makes comics, this is like the absolute nightmare. And I'm just sending so much love to Alexandra for having to draw these pages again. And I'm so grateful because it's just such a special book. And I think it's just so bad that this happened. But I'm so glad that the... The issue is is still going to come out. Yeah, I've done this for uh, for podcasts, not in a while, but I've mm. done it before to the point where I've like installed Time Machine and been like, "Can I reverse engineer my own hard drive to find out where okay, no, no, no. this file is gone?" Like- Actually, audio wise, it has happened to me. I I definitely have had the done a like really incredible interview where I'm just like, "This is like killing it," and then it's like. It's gone, or for some reason, there's only like two minutes of it that have been recorded, and that is like a devastating feeling. And then finally, the return of Saga from Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples, the Image Comics uh, Titan space opera love story that will break your heart and make you laugh. One of the sexiest comics, the most romantic, Mm -hmm. the most adventurous comics out there has returned after a three-year layoff. Their last issue was issue 54 from July 2018. Just this Wednesday, uh, issue 55 came out. No spoilers, folks. But man, it definitely felt like the first issue of the drive towards the end of this story because Mm -hmm. there are certain things in there that just hurt so much. <laughs> there, yeah. There's some exchanges in there that are extremely painful, but it's just wonderful to have it back. Rosie, how do you feel about uh, about Saga being back? Yeah, I just, I have, the, I have missed, like, Fiona working like this. Like, yeah. the, the, the art in this issue is just absolutely unbelievable. And it just throws you straight back in the world. And it is yeah. just, it feels... It it's really interesting because it feels like there's a gap and and the, some things that happen in the story you know you need to yes. that that could only have happened with that space but it also feels like you're just picking up the next issue which I think is like such a hard balance to kind That's of play very with difficult to do and I also think ironically they did a really smart thing where like. If you read this issue and you've never read Saga, you would just want to go back and read the rest of it. And so it, yeah. even though it's not a jumping on point in the sense that you will enjoy it and be affected by it more if you've read it, if you just pick this up because your comic shop ordered it, yes. it's going to be the biggest issue of yes. the month, you could pick this up and be like, wow, I love this in character they've given me. This seems like a wild story that they've been on. I wonder how they got here. And you could go back. So balancing that jumping on point kind of energy with continuing this story that's been going for over 50 issues and 10 years now that that to me is just like magic 10 years makes me feel so ancient (laughs) so fucking old i can't believe it but i will say that is you're so right about them giving you the download 
you know, the first couple of pages of of the issue, again, no spoilers, but they give you the background. Like mm-hmm. if you're a new reader, you'll, you'll learn the kind of basic setup about wh- what kind of world this story exists in. And the first thing I thought when I was reading it is like, this is classic. This is classic comic storytelling. Yeah. You know, when I got into comics, I would just buy whatever was on the rack. I had no idea where mm-hmm. an arc I was. Like exactly. what was ha- You just open it up and you're like, I'm in the middle of the story. Uh, I, I'm trusting the creators to give me enough information to orient myself mm-hmm. within this world. But that's the feeling of, of picking yeah. up a comic. And, 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 I, and I love that about it. Uh, Brian K. Vaughn had a really wonderful little kind of like welcome back readers, welcome mm-hmm. new readers little letter at the end of the issue. And I wanted to quote some of it. Uh, Quote, well, since we've been apart so long, I'm sure that our metaphorical family has changed significantly. And many of you have moved on either from this particular book or maybe even from our humble medium completely, which is sad, but also understandable. We miss you prodigal children already and remain on call to welcome you back anytime. This is, uh, this really hit me because, you know, I've gone through points of in my comics life where I'm just out of it you know, mm-hmm. a year, year and a half where I'm just like, I'm not going to, maybe I don't need it anymore. And then I always come back. But it really is, you know, thinking about this as a supporter of my local comic shop, comics really more than ever feels like a a real community of yeah. late because people could choose to just read digital comics. Like that's there. If they, It's very uh, convenient, but Many people I know and many people who love comics and love the culture of comics, like yourself, like myself, will advocate for the local comic shop. And just the fact that, like, local comic shops are in business because people choose to keep shopping there. Like, they don't have to. Uh, And that really is such a wonderful thing about the industry. Like, it is a community in which people are supporting each other in that way. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that's really powerful. It's like little choices that we make. Like, I I read a lot of manga. And... um, I just started getting all my manga added to my pull list. So now, not only do I get my single issues, mm-hmm. which honestly I'm yeah. I'm less of a I'm less of a weekly single issue guy unless it's something really cool like, you know, Saga yeah, yeah. Nubia, I'll definitely be getting into some of the the weirder DC stuff going forward, Trial of the Amazon stuff like that. X-Men obviously, but like the manga is really good because then it's like, well, you're giving your shop $13 instead of 4, yeah. you know. And and I I have a well, I think we're going to hopefully dig into this more in a different episode. We are, we are like, going to we're going to dig into this yeah, shortly. Yeah, I have a conflicted relationship with the idea of speculation and, and collection, yeah. right? But something that my my local comic shop owner told me that I just thought was really cool was like that is a really important part of what keeps them going: variant covers, collection, all that stuff. But he told me that most days they make more money just selling secondhand comics and back issue collections, and I just. I love that those two things can live alongside each other. Like people who want to collect it for the collectible nature, for the art, you know, that's really important and it is a big part of the industry. But I love that there's still just kids, adults, whoever just going in and buying like a bundle of a weird X-Men arc for $5, you know, just because they want to read the story. And and I, I really love that. And I think you're so right. And I think something that's really cool is the way that I've seen digital comics move is... Comic shops, big two comics, indie comics, that is something that we can keep alive through the support. And what digital comics can do is give us access to comics by people we would never have seen before. Yeah. So like yeah. anyone can just make a comic and put it online and let people read it for free or, or on Patreon or something. So it's kind of broadening the idea of what comics are. 
but there's still a lot like you can still go to a comic shop and buy an issue of X-Men and flip through it and, and get a cardstock cover or, or you know, get a, a variant cover or whatever. But if you want to find like weird, cool, syndicated comics, Heart of the City, Six Chicks, you know, if you want to find independent comics like Black Jose Press, there's just so many cool things going on that and they can live alongside each other. And I think for yeah. a long time, the same way it was with publishing, we were all kind of scared that digital comics would mean the death for of sure. the comic book store. And so I yeah. think you're right. It's it's such a lovely community to be able to see these things living alongside each other and to know that every niche, you know, comic shop, I don't know how many there are now. I know at one point there was 25, 2,500 in North America was the general number. But I love that you're so right. That's just kept up by people like us who just love this one art form yeah. and just want to go and be like, hey, I love this. Like, what's a cool comic to read this month? Like, what what's your favorite thing that I should be reading? Like, just put anything cool in my pool. Like, so I think that's really cool. And yeah, if you're listening to this, you can go to your local comic shop and you can create what is essentially like a subscription service called a pool list exactly. where they will always put any title that you want or manga, you know, trade paperbacks. And it's a really cool way to, one, keep up to date with your comics and two, like support the industry and the people who allow us to actually read these things, which are local comic book shops. Absolutely. On to the airlock. Welcome back to our studio where we have a special guest with us today, Toucan Sam from Fruit Loops. Toucan Sam, welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, and um, it's Fruit Loops, just so you know. Uh, fruit? Fruit. Yeah, fruit. No, it's Fruit Loops. The same way you say studio. That's not how we say it. Fruit Loops, find the loopy side. Okay, folks, we're stepping out of the airlock to dive into episode five, A Book of Boba Fett titled Return of the Mandalorian, written by Jon Favreau, directed wonderfully by uh, Bryce Dallas Howard. Let's jump into the recap. Okay. We open in a butcher shop, a front for a, a nest of criminals, and, and a wonderful multi-layered metaphor for what is about to occur in this space. <laughs> uh, one of them is named Kappa Baez. He is a Clutinian. He is the target of Din Djarin, the Mandalorian, who is back to his bounty hunting ways since we last saw him at the end of Mandalorian Season 2. Kappa doesn't really want to leave with the Mandalorian. His gang doesn't want him to leave either. Uh, Mando's like, hey, uh, you owe a lot of money. Kappa's like, that's not even me. That doesn't even look like me. What are you talking about? What are you trying to say all Clutinians <laughs> look the same? What, what is happening here? Uh, a brutal fight ensues in which Mando fires up the Darksaber, the ancient weapon of the Mandalorians. He slices through the gang and legitimately slices. For those of you who are worried, oh, my God, Disney's acquired Star Wars. It is going to water <laughs> it down. Well, you just got like the arguably the grittiest lightsaber fight in Star Wars history took place in this episode of Book of Boba Fett. In the first five minutes. First and can, five I also, minutes. can I also say, like, I know I bring this movie up a lot, but. This Timo Tejanto movie, this Indonesian horror martial arts movie called The Night Comes For Us, it has this sequence, which is a massive 
brutal blade fight in a butcher shop. And I swear to God, I need to speak to Bryce Dallas Howard and be like, was that what you were referencing here? Because it looks so similar and there's it's so grimy and so violent. And just, yeah, I, I, I watched the beginning of this episode and I was like, oh. I would not be surprised because, you know, there are a lot of references. There are a lot of nods in this episode. I would not be surprised. And uh, Bryce Dallas Howard, just a absolutely sure and oh. creative hand uh, behind the scenes. Mando, his his blade work is not the best. He pretty early on in the fight, he, he cuts his quad open uh, just under the thigh armor and uh, spends the rest of the fight just kind of like limping around. He does uh, cut Kappa Baez, poor Kappa Baez, basically in half, and then he cuts off his head and wraps it neatly in some wax paper as a, as a good butcher would. We learn that Mando is on a ring colony evoking the great oh. Larry Niven, the, the great work of sci-fi work of Larry Niven and also the Halo video games, which are, you know, Halo yep. Infinity is back in our lives. Um, I've been playing a lot of it. So it was really, really cool to see this in Star Wars. There have been ring bases in like 80s Star Wars legends, mm-hmm. but it, this was just really, really cool to see. And it looked stunning. It looked so unbelievable. Cool. And it was huge. We actually, the camera never panned out for us to see if it is a true, complete ring, but it looked to be mm-hmm. really, really cool. Um, and also, like, this episode, obviously the highlight of the season, but one of the things yes. I, I, I think that really helped is just leaving Tatooine and getting these other textures, the textures in the butcher shop, this kind of, like, this real urban kind of like gritty atmosphere. Then the, the long shot of of the ring colony. It was just like so nice to re-engage with the size of the galaxy in this way. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Completely. So Mando goes to uh, get his money from the, the person that hired him. Goes to, he ends up at a, a really nice nightclub. And the deal apparently is not just money. He's also looking for uh, an address to the closest entrance to the ring's sub-levels, information that Mando was apparently promised at the start of this mission. When Mando threatens to walk away because uh, his employer is like, hey, why don't you sit down and have a drink with us? Uh, Mando's like, no, I, I'm not making small talk. I've got a head here wrapped in a bag. Can we just, like, do this? Like, I'm carrying around this head. Mando threatens to leave, and then finally the the bad guy's like, okay, I'll tell you. It's down at Colzac Alley by the heat vent towers. So Mando heads off in search of this place. He uses his special uh, vision modes in his helmet visor. He sees the markings. One marking is it's a Mandalorian visor, which is clearly a, a message to him, Mandalorians this way. And then, then finally he comes to a sign uh, that is – based on it's basically a mythosaur like a mandalorian mythosaur mm-hmm. sign and he knows this is the place and it's his old covert there's the the armorer is just staring out in a space uh he's paz visla is also there the armorer without even turning around just says to paz visla like go tend to him and then paz visla comes around and looks at din's a uh, pretty nasty leg wound the armorer let me just say no one is doing line readings like Emily Swallow. The, Not the a person. Not a person on this. Like the only thing that comes as close is the late great Alan Rickman <laughs> as Snape. The very, very slow Mr. Potter. Like 
that is the way Emily Swallow is chewing out these words, and I absolutely love it. Everything she says yeah. is like being completely digested like a sarlacc would digest for 10,000 <laughs> years. It's amazing. Yeah, and it's so impressive. This is just one of those really smart storytelling things where they know that she can do these reads, right? Oh, she so can they're do like, it. the first half of this episode is going to have a lot of exposition. Like a lot yes. of really cool, lore-heavy, weird, basically, we'll get to it, but a lot of like kind of finding a, a quick-ish, easy way to digest a lot of stuff that happened in a lot of other Star Wars properties. And they were like, we'll get Emily to do it. Yeah, we'll like, get- who doesn't want to listen <laughs> to the armorer just telling some stories? It's so Like, good. I absolutely love it. And she had just, every line, you're just like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> the armorer <laughs> armor asks, uh, <clears throat> how did you get that leg wound? And then so Din passes her the Darksaber and the armorer proceeds to tell uh, Din Djarin and us the history of the Darksaber. This is building on stuff that we learned from Trials of the Darksaber from Star Wars Rebels um, and uh, episodes in the Clone Wars that kind of fleshed out some of the history of Death Watch and other, other Mandalorian sects. So whoever wields the saber, the armorer tells us, if it is won fairly in combat, uh, will defeat all of their enemies and lead the Mandalorian people to a new age. If it is not one in combat, let's just say it's bad. It's really bad. Mandalore will be devastated. It is a curse upon the people. Uh, Everyone will be slaughtered. 10,000 years of galactic history thrown to the winds. And then if you happen to survive that as the armor Paz Vizsla and Mando have, you can never, ever take off your helmet ever again, no matter how much your breath stinks. Ever, ever, ever don't do it. So uh, the weapon was forged from Beskar over a thousand years ago by uh, Mandalore Tar Vizsla, founder of House Vizsla, who was also a Jedi. It was kept in the Jedi Temple after Vizsla's death, but later heisted by the Mandalorians, uh, who returned it to Mandalore, where it became a symbol of leadership to unite the people. Paz later asks Din where he got it. And Din's like, well, I fought Moff Gideon. He's not dead. P.S. I didn't manage to kill him. Uh, The New Republic took him into custody and... You know, he's probably going to go on trial for the millions of Mandalorian deaths that he caused. (laughs) The armorer then continues with her download about history. The songs of eons past spoke of the legendary Mythosaur whose appearance would hearken a new age. Uh, Sadly, she says, and this is my favorite line in the whole thing, I think. She says, sadly... It only exists in Legends, which is a cheeky wink to Star Wars Legends, the kind of like decanonized swath of stories from the 80s, 90s, early 2000s uh, that was kind of like swept away when Disney took over and re uh, reestablished their own timeline for the canon. So a fun little wink at the audience. And also, let's theorize a bit here. I think also clearly... Some foreshadowing. We know that Boba Fett loves animals and loves big ones. Mm -hmm. Loves to ride a big animal. Nothing, loves nothing more, has the spurs to do it. We know that there has already been an Easter egg uh, in which Boba talks about riding a creature bigger, Mm -hmm. uh, bigger than the Rancor, right? And then there's been these too many hints for it not to mean something. So many mentions of, oh, you know, Tatooine was once covered by oceans. 
right? It's, mm-hmm. I, I feel like something like a mythosaur is going to reappear yep. and either Boba or Din are going to ride it. And it's going to have something to do with the fact that Tatooine used to be covered in water. Yeah, I totally agree. And I also think the biggest tell here is the use of it only exists in legends. Because yeah. if you follow this stuff clearly... You know, many of us were upset when the expanded universe ended up becoming called Legends, was decanonized. But what Disney does is they pick and choose what they want to bring back. Thrawn Thrawn gets bring back. Of course, Thrawn is coming back. You know, the episode about Boba Fett escaping the Sarlacc pit was based on a short story from Legends. So I think that is really the key. And it's very much, like Saul just pointed out, it's very much Disney doing the MCU with Star Wars. Where they kind of pick and choose. How do we connect this? And actually, that was something I was thinking about a lot when I watched this episode. I was thinking about something you said when we were talking about Peacemaker, where you said for something to matter and for it to have an impact and for people to really care about it, they want to know why they should. They want to know how it connects. What does it mean? Why should they care about this story? And this episode is like the best example of that. 100%. Where it just takes something from, there is references in this from the High Republic yeah. to episode one, to the Mandalorian, to the most recent stuff we've seen. And at every level, yeah, it's fan service, it's nostalgia, but at every level it makes you think, well, this is why you've been watching. This is why you needed to, this is why you needed to know that Boba Fett is good with animals. Yes. That's going to be important here. Yeah. This is why you needed, you know, we see, you know, we'll get to it, but there's even stuff here where I'm like, oh, that's why we got the cool cyborg kids. Yeah. They're going to be used. This is the connecting episode that makes everything that came before. If you weren't into the more outrageous, serialized, classic 70s style storytelling, this is the one where they sort of bring it all in and go, don't worry. Yeah. It's leading somewhere. It really is the the marvelization of Star Wars in a great way. I think you're exactly right. I was amazed at how many, you mentioned the High Republic, there, you know, Star Wars Fallen Order, the video game is referenced yep. here. The prequels are referenced here. The original trilogy is referenced here. Clone Wars, Rebels, all of those things are re- like every level of Star Wars has something in this episode, but it's seamless. Like, it's just a great, it's a fantastic ride. And to your point, it just makes you feel like, ah, I'm beginning Mm -hmm. to see how all of this stuff uh, could connect. Back to our story. The armor asks about the uh, the Beskar spear that Mando's carrying. What of the spear? And (laughs) Mando is like, I got it from a Jedi. Uh, It can block a lightsaber. Uh, But the armor is concerned that it can pierce Beskar armor, thereby imperiling their kind. And it, it seems at this moment... Besides Bo-Katan and her cadre of of survivors, that this covert, the armor, Paz Vizsla, and and Mando is kind of it. This might be it. Mm -hmm. So the armor is very concerned about anything that could could allow Beskar armor to be pierced. And also, she mentions that the traditional use of Beskar is as a defensive measure. It's as armor. We use it as armor. Mando then asks that the spear be reforged into new armor. And he uh, he asks about uh, Bo-Katan. The armorer tells Mando that because Bo was gifted the Darksaber, and these are the events we saw at the last episode of Mandalorian Season 2, because he was, he was gifted the sword, her claim to it was cursed. So Bo-Katan got the sword in Rebels and then off screen, stuff we haven't seen yet. She clearly was uh, leading the Mandalorian people at that time, and that led to 
in, at least in the armorer's mind, led directly to uh, the Night of a Thousand Tears, which we then see in flashback and thrilling fashion. Imperial TIE bombers over the surface of Mandalore, just bombing it into submission. Very, very few Mandalorians, practitioners of the way, huddled on the moon of Concordia, survived the genocide. Now, what this tells us is... Because the moon of Concordia was where Death Watch and extremist Mandalorian sect was banished to, they uh, did not agree with the Duchess Satine Kreese's attempt to make Mandalore a more peaceful and modernized mm-hmm. nation. So they were banished. This pretty much confirms that the armorer and Paz Vizsla and other adherents of the way, anybody who was on Concordia that survived, are basically the remnants of and the descendants of these, like, very ultra-violent Mandalorian sects, which is really interesting. Yeah, I find it really interesting, especially, and I think it's going to play a lot into what we see going forward, especially with stuff that we'll get to that happens next. But there's this very interesting space that Din exists in, which is this compromise between being deeply connected with the Jedi for some reason and keeping that. coming across them. He ha- He's with, you know, Grogu, the Darksaber. You have to wield it like a lightsaber or you can never wield it. And Mandalore and the Mandalorians. And I think that conflict will play into the future of the Mandalorian and the future of Star Wars. And also, I think that Din will find his power when he finds the, the, bo- the, co- the connection of both. I think you're 100% right. That brings us into this uh, this next part of the recap. The armor is like, well, what are we going to make? Out of this Beskar spear. And Mando's like, I want to make armor. And I want to make little baby cutie, little tiny little baby cute armor for my little baby baby friend. <laughs> and the armor, the armor tells Mando, well, Grogu is with his own kind now. You cannot see him because a Jedi's training requires them to forego all attachments. And Din shows wisdom here. He argues that, well, that runs counter to Mandalorian values about loyalty and connection, right? So this is important, and this ties into what you were just saying, because once Mm -hmm. upon a time in Legends, and it's still canon, but in Legends this was more fleshed out. There was thousands of years ago a Jedi-Mandalorian war that was extremely destructive. It left, uh, you know, the Mandalorian homeworld scarred, and they had to live in uh, little spheres after this on the surface of the planet because it was so environmentally destroyed. But here in this exchange, we see the seed of that ideological conflict. The Jedis are connected to the universe, right? They're connected to the Force and all living beings, but they also seek to detach, they, they want to isolate themselves from emotion and detach themselves so they can more justly do their job. The Mandalorians are physically isolated. They want to be away from everybody else, right? But they forge these intense and very, very mm-hmm. strong tribal ties almost, like forged in Beskar with other people in their cohort, with other individuals. I and mean, it's important to remember, Mandalorians, it's not a race necessarily. It's really a culture. Yes. Um, so that, you're so right, that conflict, that is the seed of that conflict. The Jedis want to detach. The Mandalorians want to engage and, and mm-hmm. stay attached. So how Din is going to navigate this is going to have a lot to do with how he manages to tame the Darksaber. It's going to be his journey going forward into Mandalorian Season 3, and I can't wait to see it. Moving on. The Armorer later on spars with Din. Uh, She uses Beskar hammer and tongs against the Darksaber, and Din and the Blade are completely out of sync. Uh, This calls back to memory 
Kanan training Sabine in use of a lightsaber. Uh, this was really cool. Mando just can't manage to get the rhythm. It's like he can barely lift the blade. The armor warns Mando that you, you can't outmuscle this. You have to find it in your mind. Uh, you have to be able to to focus it and and guide it. You can't just use your physical body. And Paz Visla is like, aha, maybe that means that you don't deserve this. Let's go. Let's fight. My great, great ancestor made that. So technically it's mine. So what do you say? Let's duel. And Dinjarin accepts. The fight sans jetpacks takes place on a walkway, like hanging over the void. And it's Darksaber versus uh, Vibroblade and a little energy uh, shield. It's a seesaw battle with Paz disarming Mando, but then he is even worse at wielding the blade than Mando is. (laughs) And Mando wins. Uh, he's got the vibroblade to pause his neck, and the armorer. The armorer then asks the combatants if they've ever taken off their helmet. I have a note here for the armorer, and like, listen, I get it. It's hard when you're the only people left, and you got to make up the rules as you go. But I kind of feel like you have to ask the helmet thing before the fight, yes. because like, what if? What if Mando kills Paz and now there's only two of you and you're excommunicating half the community? (laughs) (laughs) Like, what are we doing? And now you're alone. How does this can't work like this? I also couldn't work out. I was like, is this her (laughs) way of not having Din like lead them? Because I feel like she knows that Paz has never taken off that helmet. Right. But when Mando wins, suddenly she wants to know if either of them have taken it off. It's like, who's more likely? The one who has a cute baby that he loves or this like badass like Death Watch guy? Like, I wonder. So I was trying to work out, like, was this like a mistake or was this a tactical decision? That's a good good point. To kind of... Wow, I read it in the moment as a kind of ritualistic thing that you ask, Mm. you know, like... like, uh, like all rise when you enter a courtroom, but maybe yeah. you're maybe you're right because she had to know that one of the two was much more likely to have taken <laughs> off their helmet. So Din is like, ah, wait, what you what did you say? And she's like, have you ever taken off your helmet? And he's like, ah, well, like off, like all the way off, or like how, like what are we talking about? Like just the just the chin, or okay, I took it off, and the armor excommunicates Mando. Hand He's in your, out. She's hand, like, bye. That's it. Hand in your Mandalorian driver's license. You are out. Now, listen, legends, uh, the songs of Eon's past do say you can get back in the good graces uh, by bathing in the living waters of the mines of Mandalore. And then, but also, <laughs> they were destroyed. They were destroyed. So good luck. <laughs> so, oh, shit. What are we going to do? Uh, so Din packs his things and heads for the airport and literally the airport. Like he's got to go through security, which is a slight hiccup because Din is, of course, heavily, heavily, heavily armed and has to spend like 20 minutes taking out his bullets and like putting the dark saber in a case and like unspooling all the cable from his like wrist cable shooter, the whole thing. He eventually gets on a, a, a Corellian th- uh, freighter express to Tatooine. On board the freighter, in a wonderful uh, little scene, a Rodian child waves at Din from the row ahead. And clearly you're thinking, oh, it's this young uh, green alien. Of course, Din is thinking of Grogu. You could just see it on his helmet (laughs) that he's like, oh, Grogu, my friend. Back on Tatooine. We're back. We go to our friend Pelimato's repair shop, uh, played by the great and 
hilarious Amy Sedaris. And she has a new droid, a BD droid. Is it BD-1 itself from the Fallen Order games? I don't know, but it is definitely a BD droid, which uh, was so fantastic and cute to see. Peli, with an assist from Mando, uh, rescues the BD from a womp rat. And then Mando is, uh, Peli's like, what are you doing here? Mando's like, you called me. What are you talking, you called me. You said you had a replacement for my old Razor Crest that's now gone. So Peli shows Mando uh, a wreck of an N1 Nabooian Royal Starfighter pre-Imperial antique built on the orders of the Queen of Naboo herself, built by hand. It is uh, it is theoretically super cool, but in really bad shape. It's not assembled. Yeah. It is a wreck. And Mando's like, I'm not buying this. I'm not spending money on this. Then Peli goes into the hard sell. Hey, uh, listen, I know it's I know it's looks in pieces right now, but I have all the pieces. Put all the pieces together. Now, here's the cool thing about this ship. It is so old, it's untraceable. And Mm -hmm. it can dock without the standard docking ring because it's pre-Empire. And, like, if you're into resale value, once again, I have to say, commissioned by the Queen of Naboo personally. So (laughs) Din and Peli and the droids get busy uh, reassembling this thing. Peli brings Mando a turbonic Venturi assimilator that she got from Jawas, which... Uh, she, which allows her to tell Mando that, she, listen, I have a good relationship with the Jawas. I let them dig through my trash. And also I once dated a Jawa who are hairy, which is was an unbelievable reveal. And it's shocking, <laughs> shocking reveal to the cabin. <laughs> shocking. A, one of the most shocking reveals in Star Wars history. I let them pick, <laughs> I let them pick through my dumpster, which all of a sudden took on numerous different meanings. Yes. Uh, Din then gives the Jawas a list of parts to get for him. And when the Jawas return, Din learns uh, from the Jawas uh, that they stole one of the items from a pike ship. And the pikes are in the area. They are muscling in on Tatooine. Peli tells Mando, law enforcement won't even go near them now. Din takes the N1 out for a spin, and it is just a really fun sequence. Super fun Star Wars sequence. Uh, yep. The completed ship has a little bubble for Grogu instead of the astromech yes. port, which is delightful. You know it's going to be. He's going to be sitting there, that little baby. <laughs> He's going to love it. Uh, Din whips the N1 through Beggar's Canyon. We see the uh, the guardrails. Uh, yeah, they never An- fix. They never <laughs> fix the guardrails that Anakin slammed through in the Phantom Menace, which was a, a wonderful little Easter egg. Uh, he then takes uh, the N one up into orbit, where he buzzes the commercial flight that he had previously rode on. Uh, the Rodian child waves at him, and the next thing you know, it's boop boop. Pull it, pull it, pull it, trip over. He's uh, Din is pulled over by New Republic X wings, uh, and our. Good friend, lead officer, Captain Carson Teva is is the, the leader of this squadron. Uh, Mando doesn't have his license, doesn't have his registration, doesn't have tags, doesn't have insurance. But he promises, listen, I just put this thing together. I'm getting all that. I promise you. Can I just get off of the warning? Teva's like, yeah, I'll let you go with the warning. Uh, but I recognize your voice from this crazy, like, incident involving Imperial dead enders back in Navarro. Is that you? <laughs> and Mando's like, I don't want to talk about it. Boom hits the afterburst, and is gone. Uh, So that's a hard no. So here's my question. So we now know the New Republic is on Tatooine. The pikes Mm -hmm. are, like, wide out in the open, like, pushing into the area. It's weird, one, that the New Republic is, like, pulling over speeders and doesn't care about the pikes, which leads me to ask, 
Is someone in the New Republic helping, working with the Pikes somehow? Yeah, I'm. I'm really interested in in what the who the Pikes are, yeah. and what they might be connected to. Because it seems one, like we get it. The New Republic is like some funny old dudes in some old X-Wings. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. we get it. It's, it's, like all, doing... it's like boomers, all boomers. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. like they're, they're always a little bit late to show up. They're kind of pretty chilled out. So I get it. They might not want to be going against this syndicate that's across the whole galaxy. But at the same time, I'm like, guys, guys, yeah, I'm, I want to know. I feel like the way that they're seeding it, there yeah. has to be some kind of connection with the Pikes in the New Republic. At least somebody a little bit high up. And Star Wars has always been about corrupt politicians, trade wars, all this kind of stuff. So it would really fit in. But also, like, are the Pikes really just, like, the Pikes? Or are they working for someone else? else. Like, is it it gonna be some, you know, Knights of Ren? I know that's one of the things that people just keep thinking about. Like, is it gonna be, you know, are we gonna see Kira? Like, I, I feel like they do such a good job of this show, with this show, of kind of sprinkling in these little bits that we can take from and again the MCUification of Star Wars. Oh, what could this mean? Yeah. What's the theory? Is it Mephisto? You know, like the little nods that if you've read the books or you've watched the movies or you've watched The Mandalorian, you can take some guesses about. And I feel like the way they're playing with the pikes, they're either gonna do a really great fake out where it's yeah. just this new terrible crime syndicate that's gonna become a big part of Star Wars, or it's something else entirely that's much more connected to the universe as we already know it. Uh, finally, Din uh, lands back at Pelly's shop. Fennec Shan shows up. She's like, I've got an offer, some uh, some work. I, I hear you need some work. It's great pay. It's a muscle gig. You're beefing for my good buddy Boba Fett, whose show this theoretically is, even though he has not appeared at all in this episode. It's been all you, buddy. Uh, and Din Djarin, the Mandalorian, says, Absolutely. I will work for you. In fact, I'll work for no money, but I got to go get my son. <laughs> yeah, he, says, he says, I got to go see a little friend. I got to go see my little friend. And uh, I'm like, wow, I, I love him. I mean, listen, we were worried. We were worried after uh, after Mandalorian season two, where it seemed like maybe maybe season three of The Mandalorian is not going to involve any Grogu, and that clearly appears to not no. be the case. Grogu's going to be back in our lives, which is fantastic. Uh, okay, let's uh, thoughts on this episode. Any predictions uh, at all? Like any any theories about what's going on here? So I do really think that they did a great fake out at the end where they had of season two of The Mandalorian where they had Luke take Grogu, and it's like he's a Jedi. Yeah. But now I understand this episode specifically kind of leaning on what we talked about. I think this connection between Mandalore through Din and then the Jedi through Go- Grogu is going to be like really key to the future yeah. of what we see in Star Wars. And I think it's going to be about building on these two separate clans and separate belief systems and trying to find a way where the two of them can like come together. And I think that is going to be really, really key. Uh, I also think like, I know how they've been writing this show, so I want it to be that we'll see Grogu in the next episode, or we'll we'll see that Grogu's. <laughs> but little friend could also mean like any number of like oh, creatures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So I'm also like, I've got the the Grogu fit, but we know he had a Mandalorian armor made for Grogu, which looked kind of like a chainmail. I think was kind yes, of the vibe. I- <laughs> 
<laughs> so look, he's only given him that little little chainmail beskar onesie for a little Grogu buddy <laughs> for the baby. <laughs> I mean, also my biggest takeaway from this, like moving away from predi- predictions just slightly, is like, when are they going to give Bryce Dallas Howard a Star Wars movie? Because like I'm soon. sorry, this this looks was great. It, it looks unbelievable. So good. It looked unbelievable. It just everything about like that the ring class, I was just like oh my god when the way you could see the gardens and yeah, the outdoor beautiful. buildings like the scene where Din goes to get his money with the head yeah. in the bag it's like a it, I don't know if it's a true one shot but it was made to look like a one shot from when he goes up in the elevator he goes when he's having the conversation with the gangsters it's like moving constantly around the table it just looked so cool it looked I, so I, good I just, I love this episode. I think it's really exciting. And I'm very interested to see, will the next episode be an adventure with Din trying to get Grogu? Will we go back to Boba and be waiting for Din Mm. to come back to be the muscle? Yeah, I'm also really interested to see what else they start pulling in from the cartoons, from Rebels. Same. From... Clone Wars, because because so much of this stuff that we saw today, the dark saber, you know, the the re, the the first live action uh, representation of the fall of Mandalore, I think that is stuff that if you watch these cartoons, if you read the books, if you read the comics, you are well versed in. But this is the first time that they're bringing it into this main movie style canon in a deeper way. So it's a really great introduction to. New viewers who mostly just watched the movies in the theaters got really into The Mandalorian on TV. But I want to know where that's going and what else we will see them bring in from those like Rebels, the end of Rebels. I understand, like, I know how it is. I grew up in the (laughs) 80s and the 90s. I love 2D animation. CG animation is really hard for me to get my hands and my head around. And I know that Clone Wars and Rebels... The animation style does not necessarily look appealing to people of our age. But you got to watch those shows, especially like Rebels introduces some of the most interesting yes. and coolest characters and also stuff. Like the end, the final two episodes of that season oh, introduce this unbelievable concepts into Star Wars of these ideas of it's almost fantasy concepts, fantasy. you know what I mean? Like, yeah, these, I don't want to spoil it, but like, I don't, don't want to spoil they, it either. But it's really, they blow really good. Up yeah, the world of what Star Wars can be, and I wonder as we get more into this, the thing that is very wild about watching this show is it is set in a timeline where we know what happens, which makes it kind of feel like, well, how far can they really go with it? Yeah, like where can it go? But I feel like these concepts and ideas of timelines and portals and all these different cool things that exist in Star Wars now, maybe we're going to start to see that to work out almost different ways that the history mm. can go from from what we know. And, and I think that the way that this episode bridged the gap between everything from the High Republic to episode, you know, who thought we'd get so many prequels references? I mean, like, I, I, I was, that was so delightful. I, I honestly thought joyous. it was going to be a, it, absolutely joyous. I, I really thought it was going to be, I thought for a second it was going to be a pod racer that, uh, that mm-hmm. Pele was going to unveil, but like that it was an N1 starfighter was really, really cool. To your point about picking and choosing the fun stuff, they've really, they've picked some of the best stuff from the yeah. prequels to, to kind of reference here. I agree with all that. I do wonder, this feels like there's been a lot of kind of like, 
not snickering, but like commentary about like how, oh, Book of Boba Fett is so bad that they just made it, you know, they hijacked it and made it like the Mandalorian two and a half. But I do wonder if this series, Book of Boba Fett, isn't going to be a handoff in some way of giving Mando a lot of this, who is back to bounty hunting, recall, giving Mando a lot of the stuff that Boba Fett did in Legends canon as a bounty mm. hunter. Like, I wonder if that, if it's not going to be a kind of handoff in that way where um, yeah. Boba Fett is this new type of, you know, moral gangster uh, reigning mm-hmm. from Tatooine and is like really out of the game of bounty hunting. And it's actually Mando who is doing the bounty hunting adventures around the galaxy in the way yeah. that Boba Fett did in Legends. I think, I think, would- I, I do wonder if we'll see something like that. I think that makes a lot of sense, especially because I think a lot of people are realizing in their reactions to this show that what they really liked about Boba Fett was the armor, was the Mandalorian Mm. aesthetic, was the laws of Mandalore, rather than they didn't necessarily want to get to know Boba Fett. You know, that's it's one of the curses of uh, being an iconic character who's only in a film for a a few minutes, you know, is like once people get to know you, maybe you're not going to live up to their their dreams or their hopes or their cool vibes. But Din actually embodies a lot of what people really liked about Boba Fett. So I think it would make a lot of sense for them to become a malleable kind of like Din's getting to go on some Boba adventures that we would know Boba had been on. Or, you know, kind of him taking on that more cool masked Mandalorian role. But obviously with the little baby. With a, li- with a little baby. And then, then finally, like, man, we're going to see something like the Mythosaur, right? I guess the only question is... Who is going to be the leader that, like, reunites the Mandalorian diaspora? Is it going to be Din Djarin? Is it going to be Boba, who's probably not interested in it? To be fair, Din is not interested in it at all, which makes him the likely person to end up being that. And will that bring uh, Din into conflict with Bo? I wonder if they're going to set it up so Bo wins the Darksaber back or something. Because it seems like you said, Din doesn't really want to lead the Mandalorians. Boba yeah. definitely doesn't. No, he doesn't. So want to do it. I wonder if it will be that uh, some kind of someone will have to win it back from Din, but it will be the right person. That's interesting. Because I also want to listen, I, Bo Katan, as far as I'm concerned, spotty history. Uh, <laughs> I, I maybe wouldn't be a bad leader for the Mandalorian people, but I kind of think that if you preside over like the greatest Holocaust in Mandalorian history, yes. whether it was your fault or not, you're kind of done at that point. Like, let's get a new candidate. Let's get some new blood in there. I think you're kind of finished. What if it was like something like, because the idea is anyone who wields it can lead the Mandalorians, yeah. doesn't necessarily. Ha- I was, so Chris, our producer, just put it in. What if they did something where it's like Sabine? Because technically, Sabine Wren, one of the coolest characters Absolutely of all one of time, the uh, archaeologist, cool, uh, cipher reader, badass, like everything. Just absolutely amazing. She's graffiti artist. Graffiti artist. Like cool, like graffiti artist, but the graffiti is like deeply connected to like weird Jedi lore. And like she is gonna be in the Ahsoka show. Yes. Is that confirmed? We're we're guessing, but I think it's a strong guess. The the general assumption is they cast the woman Natasha Lou Bordizo, and I think everyone assumes that she's gonna be Sabine. So she may she may appear in a new upcoming live action Star Wars show. She's a fan favorite character, and I think she has one of the coolest Mandalorian helmets of all time. 
Absolutely. She's got this like orange and purple badass. And that could be a very cool different route for them to go where you would give this fan favorite character a new, more expanded role that is very unexpected and also doesn't necessarily have to cut into the adventures and serialized nature of the kind of things that people want to see the Mandalorian like Dinger and do him. Uh, well, this was a super fun episode. Uh, people, it's a, as, as you mentioned, it has like whispered as Mandalorian season two and a half. I wonder how much Mando we're going to get here on out. Is is he just going to be a part of this show going forward? Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. But this was one of my favorite episodes of television in a little bit. Really, yeah. really fun show. Can't wait to keep talking about it with you, Rosie. Up next, uh, our friend Kirk pitches us on Babylon 5 on our next segment of Nerd Out. In this week's Nerd Out, our recurring segment where you tell us what you love and why, my good friend Kirk, number one Mavericks fan, pitches us on Babylon 5. Hello, friends. My name is Kirk Henderson, and I wanted to pitch you on Babylon 5. I discovered Babylon 5 in the mid-90s while watching TNT. I'd been into Star Trek since always. My first name is Kirk, after all. And the idea of a space show with computer-generated graphics was too much for 10-year-old me to pass up. I think more people should try this series out, because it's a bit of a legacy nerddom show, in that it's influential, but it's not as widely known as other fandoms. Written by J. Michael Straczynski, Babylon 5 was a five-season science fiction show which ran from 1993 to 1998. I think it's one of the first shows to use CGI over models for special effects. It followed a group of humans and aliens on a space station labeled The Last Best Hope for Peace. In this universe, humans are what I'd consider to be a mid-major football program in the species hierarchy. Humans are pushing into space, but are not near the most technologically advanced species. What made this show different was at this point in time when it aired, there was very little serialized storytelling, at least in the science fiction world. Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, for example, were still mostly week-to-week bottle episodes with some overarching storytelling. I'd argue that Babylon 5 helped push Deep Space Nine to greatness in its later seasons. The five-year, 110-episode arc of Babylon 5 was largely mapped out in advance and executed by Straczynski in a way that I had not come in contact with in television at that point in time. The overarching story was the slow return of an ancient and powerful race. But returning for what? The show dealt with war, occupation, racism, classism, and all the other themes that a great science fiction show tackles. It replaces the lead, for story reasons as far as I can tell, one season in and keeps kicking ass. Andreas Katsoulis, the one-armed man from The Fugitive, and Peter Jurisic from Hill Hill Street Blues play the best supporting characters of any science fiction show ever, at least in my opinion. It has a clear arc and a very satisfying ending. Oh, and Walter Koenig, Chekhov from Star Trek, has a recurring role as a member of a psychic intelligence force that's nefarious as hell. I can't recommend this show enough. It's on HBO Max right now, and it's had the CGI touched up a little bit. And what's better is that J. Michael Straczynski is returning to the series, getting a full-on reboot. Thank you for having me on the pod. It's a wonderful show. Kirk, thanks for submitting. If you want to be featured, send your nerd out pitch and voice memos recording to x-ray at crooked.com. The instructions are in the show notes. Up next, the end game. (laughs) 
We are in the end game now, and today Rosie and I are playing Mando Kart, where we pick a Star Wars vehicle, Star Wars character, and a Star Wars weapon to run the Rainbow Road course of Mario Kart. Now, Rainbow Road, it's divisive. It really is just kind of like an infinity loop, but I think it has the best theme song in all of Mario Kart, Mm -hmm. and I can't wait to talk about it. Producer Chris, flip a coin, and I will call it, and we'll see who goes first. Cool. Cool. Ready? All right. Flipping. Uh, Tails. It is Tails. Oh, so I get to choose? Oh, okay. I'll go first. Okay. uh, Rainbow Road. So Rainbow Road, um, I think I want to hover here. And, oh, okay. I know what I'm going to do. So here's my my strategy for Mario Kart most of the time is I don't care about weight, you know, because, like, having a heavy character like Dry Bowser or Metal Mario, it's important Mm -hmm. for, like, knocking opponents, like, off their track. I don't care about that. I pick a character I think is cute. And I also pick, like, the vehicle that I think is cute. And I also pick the wheels that I think are cute. And then I pick, like, the glider that I think is the cutest. I basically pick for cuteness, not stats. Now, if I'm losing a lot, I will maybe go to dry Bowser and then some other, like a, a, a motorcycle or something. But usually I just go for cuteness. So I, I'm going to stick with that. I'm going to go for cuteness. And here's what I'm going to do. It's not about winning. This is about doing it in style. My character is Grogu. Now, this is actually, I think, would be great on the Rainbow Road course. I'm going to pick Grogu's little hover baby carriage from Mando season one and two that uh, Mando, you know, with the little retractable roof. It's true it doesn't go very fast, but Rainbow Road is all about turns and hairpin turns. Mm-hmm. And I th- and the, the complete lack of friction, I think, is going gonna, is gonna to work in my favor. So I'm going to go with the, the little kind of floating baby carriage for baby Grogu. Weapon. Does he need one technically because he can just like force stuff? Now, the danger here is he forces, he uses the force and he falls asleep. Now he's asleep in the baby carriage. <laughs> okay. So that is, is a problem. But the races only last like three minutes. So I'm going to say his weapon is the force. And then uh, let's see, for uh, the glider. Gosh, I, I, you know, theoretically, I don't need to know that he needs a glider, but I think if we were going to make one and kind of tie it into what we're doing, uh, you know, the theme of this conversations we're, we've been having, I'm going to say let's make the glider out of bantha hide, a little bantha fur glider. Mm. It probably wouldn't glide that well, but that's fine. There's not a lot of jumps on Rainbow Road. Um, and those are my picks. We're not going to win, but we're going to look great doing it. Rosie, wow. what do you have? I love that. Yeah. That's definitely my general. When I really play Maricot, I, I generally go for like what looks cool. 100%. And I usually like, like when I play a fighting game, I usually just pick any woman. So yes. I'm like, now Mario Kart, I'm always like Princess Daisy or Princess Peach. Or like, <laughs> you know, it's like, I'll be in Mortal Kombat. I mean, that has actually, they, they have so many good women characters that, oh, that absolutely. taught me really well. Okay, so... You went for ultra cute, so I'm going to go for my my general rule that I've gone into with the, the, the newest Mario Kart on my Switch is the motorcycles are, like, very good. Yeah. And and everyone has, like, a funny-themed motorcycle. So I play as Isabel from Animal Crossing a lot on her little Animal Crossing motorcycle. So I'm going to go for... I'm going to pick... I'm just going to go for my faves. So I'm going to pick Poe Dameron. He's a great fly. He's a great, a great flyer. pilot. Great, great, great flyer. Pilot. Cocky yeah. flyer boy. Wonderful guy. And because of the nature of how good a motorcycle is, I'm going to go for Ray's speeder. Because that's the closest thing, I feel like, to a motorcycle. I'm, I'm hearing right now, wait, hold on, Chris, you've got to put March of the Resistance. 
the theme song March of the Resistance you've got to put under this. <laughs> you know, I think the thing that you did that was really powerful for Rainbow Road is like Grogu can just like force lift himself up. <laughs> so like I think that's really and I th- I feel like a speed this this kind of hover speeder technology is good because it's like yeah. if you go a little bit off you can hopefully come back on before you fall off, you know. I also am of the belief, the old school Star Wars belief, that anyone who is force sensitive is usually a really good pilot. So I yes. believe Poe Dameron is force sensitive. I believe Han Solo is slightly force sensitive. I absolutely love this take and I, I yeah. subscribe to it as well. It is like a classic Anakin, brilliant yeah. pilot. Yeah. You know, Luke, brilliant pilot. Like we know, Darth Vader, we know this is a thing. Like, so I believe that Poe is force sensitive. In the comics, you know, he grew up, his mother was a badass pilot. And guess what? In his In her garden... <laughs> There was force trees, baby. Yeah. Force trees. So I believe it. I wrote a lot of articles about it. Poe Dameron, force sensitive. So if he's going to fall off, hopefully the force can help him a little bit. Weapon-wise, I'm just sticking with my faves. So I'm going to go for the most underrated but unquestionably powerful weapon in the whole Star Wars universe, which is the Ewok spear. Oh. Because how (laughs) did... I'm sorry, like, those Ewoks, they are the reason that anyone won. The Ewok spear is very powerful. It is very powerful. apparently can take down the Empire. That's just how it is. I love Ewoks. I've got an Endor tattoo. Like, that's just how it is. So I'm taking it. Um, Okay, if we can make any... If we can make any glider, my glider will be... This is in honor of Oscar Isaac and his passion for this ship. That My glider will be like a little chibi image of Poe and Finn kissing. (laughs) When, yeah. I mean, Oscar Isaac, he wanted it. He He wanted them so bad to be in love. I truly believe that's when the timeline started going bad, when they didn't just commit to Finn and Poe being gay. (laughs) So I'm like, I'm going to pay homage to Oscar Isaac's favorite ship. And that will be it. It's like a little, they're not smooching so much, you know, maybe just a little kiss on the cheek, little love heart eyes. It's like very cute, distracts some people while he's flying. I also probably wouldn't win because Rainbow Road's really hard. Yeah. And I'm terrible at breaking. That's fine. But you know what? We would look so cool. We would look so cool. We're just having a good time. That's all. That's all. And that's it for the end game. Let us know who you think won and use hashtag XRV Endgame to give us your pick. Who would you choose? Who would you uh, race Rainbow Road with? Uh, Let us know. A big thank you to Rosie Knight, the great Rosie Knight, who I am the number one fan of for joining us on X-Ray Vision. Rosie, where can we find your stuff? You can find it all kinds of places. Uh, I write a lot about comics at Polygon. I write about movies, Star Wars, all this kind of stuff at Nerdist. I write a lot of movie reviews at IGN and also some comic stuff there. You know, comics and the MCU has been so big recently, but a few years ago, Star Wars was really my big my big writing thing. So uh, if you like any of the stuff we were talking about, especially with Rebels and Clone Wars, I did a lot of deep dives into some stuff that I think now is probably going to become relevant in Star Wars. So all that kind of stuff. On my website, you can just click a link and there's a page that just collects every single thousands of articles I've written. So that's easy. And I'm on Instagram, which is where I'm always shouting out this podcast and where I actually have managed to connect with a lot of people who listen to it. And that's Rosie Marks, M-A-R-X. So yeah, thank you so much for having me. On your Instagram, I should note, you you recently teased a big announcement that was coming. Can you, if you can't announce it, which I don't think you can, but can you tease it here? Tease it here for the people. I can. So I, uh, 
I am going to be writing a licensed comic, a one-shot licensed comic. And that is what I can say right now. Hopefully I can say more about it soon. But yes, I also write comics. You can. There's a page on my website where you can click and go. A bunch of the comics are free. Some of them you have to buy. But I will be writing my first... I've done direct market comics before, but soon I will be writing my first licensed comic. And that's exclusive for X-Ray Vision. Woo! <laughs> if you want to learn more about the stuff we explore in each episode, check out our listener's guide to all things X-Ray Vision in the show notes or on our website. Catch the next episode on February 4th. And again, send your nerd out submissions to x-ray at crooked.com. Here's the cool thing about nerd out. Through Swords Point, I'm working my way uh, up to Attack on Titan. I'm working through the stuff. If you recommend it, we will watch it. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by me, Jason Concepcion, and Sandy Gerard. Caroline Reston and Carlton Gillespie are our consulting producers, and our editing and sound design is by Vasily Svitopoulos. Thank you to Brian Vasquez for our theme music. Goodbye. If you guys haven't seen it, the bit of the episode today where they pull him over, I'm pretty sure it's like a direct reference. The guy who made Battle Royale, this Japanese author called Kenji Fukasaka, who's so great, he made a Star Wars knockoff like two years after the movie came out called Message from Space, this Japanese Star Wars knockoff. And it's like fucking incredible. But one of the main set pieces is them getting like pulled over by two X-Wings. It's called Message from Space. It's so good. It used to just be on YouTube, I think, for free. But I think Shout Factory did like a DVD version of it. I watched a lot of bad Star Wars knockoffs, but that's the best one. Like it's, I've got a poster of it in my house, like probably my favorite movie. It's just so weird. I was like, that's the Easter egg I actually think that they put in there to that movie. Because I was just like, no one in Star Wars is ever getting pulled over by X-Wings. And I was like, oh, except in this movie that's like a funny joke movie. In the 1970s, a young group of violent revolutionaries joined forces to create the Weather Underground Organization, a group of radicals who brawled with police officers and bombed the Pentagon, all in the name of ending racism. Hi. I'm Zaid Ayers-Dorn, host of Crooked Media's new podcast, Mother Country Radicals, which dives into the true story of how my parents and their friends went from peace-loving activists to topping the FBI's most wanted list. New episodes of Mother Country Radicals are out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get podcasts. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Mr. Hamburglar. Rubble, rubble. He said, of all the McDonald's burgers I've ever hamburgled, these are the hottest, juiciest, and tastiest. Rubble. Hurry in and enjoy one of our 350 bundles, like a daily double and small fries for a limited time. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any of the offer comparison of prior classic burgers. ba 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 ba